Well, greetings, church. How are we doing this morning? Yes, Pastor Thomas with the loudest voice. Well, online campus and uh, city campus, it is so good to have you. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dave, and I have the privilege of bringing us the word this morning. And we're going to be jumping off into a new series on the book of Amos. Yes, we are in a series of Amos. Um, We're in a season of Amos. We've had Amos for the last three weeks, and now we've got Amos in the Bible for the next, I think, five or six. So, um, yeah, it's going to be a good one. Um, Before we jump in today, let me just get set up here. I think it's quite apt that actually we jump into this book uh, straight after the last series that we talked about, which was The the Greatest Commandment, if you guys remember that. Um, It is quite apt because this uh, book, in the book of Amos, it, it deals with what happens when the people of God actually fail to live up to the greatest commandments. And if you were here with us the last three weeks, you would know that the greatest commandment can be summed up as loving God and loving people. And so when the people of God forget the greatest commandment or fail to live up to that commandment, we get what is happening in the book of Amos. Now, before we jump into today's text, what we're gonna notice is what we're not going to do is we're going to, not going to go through every single chapter and every single book, every single verse in the book of Amos. Rather, what we're gonna do is we're gonna focus on certain passages within the book of Amos which highlight the key themes and messages, okay? So uh, if you notice today, we're gonna to jump straight into Amos chapter two and we're totally gonna to skip Amos chapter one, but um, that will be the reason for that. So. Are we okay? Everyone doing all right? Before we begin, we need to have a brief history lesson so that we understand what's going on. The book of Amos is a prophetic book, and so we have to understand the context into which the prophet Amos is prophesying into. If we don't get that and we read it, we're going to be very confused as to what is going on. And so allow me to give a brief history lesson which will help us understand the context of what we're going to be reading into today. So the context is this. After the death of King Solomon, the, uh, the nation of Israel actually splits into two. If, you, uh, if you're familiar with your Bible history, you'd know it splits into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Now this divide, by the time we hit the book of Amos, had happened for about 150 to 200 years by the time we read today's passage. And the northern kingdom uh, of Israel has 10 tribes, the bottom, uh, the bottom kingdom of Judah has two tribes. Uh, so that's how the, um, the nation has split itself up. And the northern kingdom has been characterized by very unstable leadership. So what you would read if you read through the book of Kings is uh, the northern kingdom had gone through king after king after king after king and they'd, some had been reigning for very short times, some had been reigning for very long times and it was very unstable. Um, very unstable because usually the kings would not have a very nice and peaceful transition and handover, but it would be king usurping king, usurping king, so there'd be assassinations, there'd be overthrowing of the government. And so the northern kingdom by this stage was characterized by very, very tumultuous leadership, a very uh, unstable political landscape. But yet when we hit 150 years later, the current king, is King Jeroboam II. King Jeroboam II was a very successful military king. And so under his rule, suddenly the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, was experiencing a level of stability and peace. And what had happened was he had been very good 
at war. And he'd been expanding the kingdom of Israel and conquering the surrounding regions and nations. And as a result, Israel was also experiencing a period of wealth. Everyone tracking with me so far? So they've had a very rough history, but suddenly they're now under this King Jeroboam II, very good military king, expansion, wealth. So things seem to be going on the up and up. But underlying all of this, this is where the book of Amos, um, the prophet Amos comes in. Because underlying the superficial appearance of wealth and political stability, what we will notice is that underneath it all, there is moral decay, spiritual decay, social decay, like we cannot even imagine. And so it's into this context that the prophet Amos steps in. Now, the first thing to know about uh, Amos is that Amos is actually not a prophet by background. In those days, uh, you would have people who would go to school to be prophets. You'd have schools of prophets, guilds of prophets. So uh, you have to be uh, a family background of prophets. Um, you usually, a prophet would usually come from that kind of background. But Amos is a shepherd. He's a shepherd and a fig tree farmer. Not, an, uh, not a prophet by trade or by background. But God called Amos to travel north from the southern kingdom of Judah to prophesy against the nations, but also primarily the northern kingdom of Israel. And he does this through a series of different oracles, different sermons, different poems. And that's where we jump into today's text. So everyone kind of with me so far? Everyone caught up on the story? All right, with that in backdrop, um, let's pray and then we'll read Amos chapter two. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just commit this time into your hands. Lord, more than just the over um, reading and the skimming of your word, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take your word, would breathe upon it and would deposit it in our hearts. Lord, I pray it would bring about conviction of who you are and who we are meant to be in you. So open our eyes to see you, open our ears to hear you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, so Amos 2, we're gonna start from verse six. So we've skipped the whole uh, Amos chapter one. That's a bunch of prophecies against the surrounding nations of Israel and Judah. But in verse six, uh, Amos zones in on the kingdom of Israel and he says this, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground. And they deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. 
The strong will not muster their strength and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. How many of you feel encouraged and uplifted right now? Um, Now at first read, the book of Amos actually paints a very angry picture. Wouldn't you agree? Um, The entire book actually goes this way. So if you're looking for an uplifting, encouraging message, you might have to wait a while. Um, In the whole nine chapters of Amos, the only encouraging thing that God says to the Israelites is reserved for the last five verses. So 95% of this book is gonna be um, quite critical, quite harsh. Um, And that can feel a little bit judgmental, very angry, and a little bit off-putting. But if you're familiar with the biblical story, history of Israel uh, in the Old Testament, you'll know that there is more to the story. There is stuff that has happened which has led up to this point. You see, church, now if you've uh, read through the Old Testament, you would know that God saved Israel, um, a, a nation of slaves from Egypt. He delivered them from their oppression. He saved them to establish a covenant relationship with them, to call them his own people. And his desire for them is that they would reflect him to the nations around them. And in return, he would be their God and they would be his people. All the benefits that came from having him as their God, they would receive. And they received it. They saw miracle after miracle after miracle as God came through on their behalf as God fought their enemies for them, as they went through impossible situations and circumstances that they could not have faced on their own, and yet God miraculously provided for them, protected them, gave them victory in battle, as God healed them, as God um, was faithful towards them when they were unfaithful towards Him. They saw the goodness of their God. They saw God part seas for them establish His presence amongst them, give them a land to call their home, drive out nations before them. And through all of this, God's desire was simply that they would be His people. They would be devoted to Him. They would be set apart from the nations around them. They would reflect Him to the people around them by their obedience to Him. And all throughout the Bible, what do we see? What do we notice? When you look at Israel's side of the bargain, you would see that almost at every single turn, Israel fails. Every single turn, they turn around and they grumble against God. They complain, they mumble against God's chosen leader. Every time God asked them to do something, the people would complain, they would moan, they would, they would uh, complain against God for His providence. Why aren't you giving me meat? Why aren't you giving me water? Every single turn, they would turn to worship other gods. They would fail at every single turn. And every time that this happened, God would withdraw his blessing over the people of Israel. And what would happen is that they would, all the benefits that came with being with God, being God's people, would start to disappear. They would begin to lose in battle. Rather than experiencing abundance of harvest, they would experience drought and famine and plagues. They would lose every time they'd go. They would experience trouble in the country, outside of the country. But God would send them, God would not leave them 
to their own devices, but God in his grace towards them, he would send them people, prophets, he would send them judges, he would send them righteous men and women who would warn them and he would call them back to himself. And every time they realized their mistake, they turned back to God, God would forgive them, he would accept them, he would take them back, he would restore them and he would bless them again. And then years later, the cycle continues where the Israelites would become complacent with what they had received. They would turn away, they would mumble and grumble against God, they would worship other gods, and this cycle would repeat itself over and over and over and over again. That's what happens when you read the Old Testament. That's the picture, the, the pattern that you see. Now, by the time we hit the book of Amos, you would, um, you would if you did a count of all the years, you would realize that this had been God's history with Israel for about a thousand years. Now, can you imagine being in that kind of relationship with someone? For a thousand years of faithfulness and blessing and all you've received is turning away and mumbling and grumbling and unfaithfulness, how would you feel? How would you feel? I would hazard a guess that if Today, we were sitting at a cafe and one of our friends came up to us and told us about this new person that they'd been dating. And they described them this way. Oh, at every turn, man, I'm just so good to them. I'm doing everything for them. I'm giving up my life for them. Uh, I'm just supporting them in every way. And every time, they just keep mumbling and grumbling about me. They keep, uh, he keeps talking to other girls. He keeps sending uh, messages to other, to, other, to other women. I think none of us would have any hesitation in saying, Get out, get out, A-S-A-P. That person is no good for you. But this is the situation that God has put himself in by coming into covenant relationship with Israel. All right, so are we kind of understanding the relational dynamic that is going on here? So by the time we hit the book of Amos, God's history, God's relationship with Israel for almost a thousand years has been on repeat, this cycle. And so when we read today's text, this is after hundreds of years of patience and long-suffering with the people of God. And that's why it starts with this phrase. In Amos 2, verse six, it says, this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. Now this phrase, for three sins or for four sins, um, it's repeated eight times in the first two chapters of the book of Amos. And it is a turn of phrase. It's not literal, meaning God is not literally saying Israel has only committed three or four sins. No, no, no. What it's being used to say is, it's a turn of phrase to say when um, a nation's sin has become overwhelming, when it has reached its tipping point and it requires God to judge. He's describing when a nation's sin has reached its tipping point where sin and wickedness has been multiplied and repeated over and over and over again until even God in his long suffering patience has reached his limit before he needs to judge the wickedness. It describes a picture where the sin of Israel was overflowing out of control almost like a mighty dam that had burst open or like a destructive wildfire that was ripping through the land. Now to help us understand today's text, I'd like to break it down for us into two parts, okay? The first part, we're gonna look at Israel's sins. What was it that made God so angry with Israel? And the second part is God's judgment. So first off, let's look at the sins of Israel. So the Northern Kingdom of Israel had committed many sins, but they could be generalized into two different categories, all right? The first is um, the category of cruelty, 
and injustice. And the second one would be the sin of spiritual compromise. In other words, it was a deep betrayal of loving God and loving people. Cruelty and injustice, failing at loving people. Spiritual compromise, failing at loving God. And this is the first thing that Amos levels at the Israelites. He says, in chapter, uh, in chapter two, verse six, they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. What was happening in those days was that the justice system was full of corruption and bribery. The courts, instead of upholding righteousness and fairness, were at the whim of the highest bidder. And as a result, the poor could not defend themselves and they often owed great debt to the rich. You know, so great was the greed of the rich that they would exploit the people poorer than them for something as insignificant and measly as a pair of sandals. That's why in verse seven it says, they trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and they, oh, sorry, I've missed it. Back to uh, verse six. That's why it says, they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. And then in verse seven, it goes on to say, they trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and they deny justice to the oppressed. You know, in a system that was so corrupt, so full of bribery, the poor were so oppressed, disproportionately affected. And yet those in power, the rulers of the day, refused to give justice to the poor. They refused to address the injustice and oppression that was happening. So this is more than just rich people mistreating the poor. But this is those in power being apathetic and indifferent to the plight of the marginalized, of the lost, of the, of the hurting within their society. And then it goes on in, in verse seven to say, father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge in the house of their gods. They drink wine taken as fines. Now you might think that when um, Amos is talking about father and son using the same girl, it's just describing some kind of weird sexual immorality and perversion that's going on, which is bad enough. But it actually gets worse. Because what Amos is making reference to is how the people of Israel were engaging in temple prostitution. Temple prostitution was a common practice in the pagan nations around, um, or surrounding Israel. And part of the worship of their gods is that they would go to their god's temple and they would um, commit acts of sexual immorality, orgies and the like with temple prostitutes. Now, to make matters even worse, Amos describes their idolatry and their sexual immorality being celebrated with the dishonest gains made by oppressing the poor within their society. Can you get the picture of what's going on here? It's a disgusting melting pot where there's sin piled upon sin, piled upon sin, piled upon even more sin. Are you catching the weight of what Amos is describing? You know, one pastor puts it this way. He says, in combination, the whole picture is almost overwhelming. Amos pictured a man committing sexual immorality with a temple prostitute, the same girl his son visited the day before, and keeping warm with a garment extorted from the poor, toasting his success with wine bought with money dishonestly gained. 
Are you getting the picture here? Amos is describing sin upon sin upon sin. It's a, it's a mess, it's overwhelming how far under the surface Israel has fallen. And so the prophet begins to bring up then, next, how Israel had failed to appreciate the goodness and the faithfulness of God to them in the past. In verse nine and 10, yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks, I destroyed their fruit above, their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. Amos is describing how God had saved Israel from slavery in Egypt, led them through the wilderness, gave them a land to call their home, gave them miraculous victories over the Amorites people so that they could enter into their promised land. In other words, God is saying, have you forgotten how good I have been to you? Have you forgotten what I have done for you? Have I not been faithful and gracious to you? Have I not fought on your behalf? Why are you taking me for granted? I always used to wonder, I was like, when I read the Bible, I was like, man, the Israelites are really dumb. Like, if, if God had done so many miraculous things in my life, how could I forget it? How could I live any differently to how he calls me to live. But then, as I grew up, I realized that what Israel has done is actually indicative of the human condition, don't you think? For you and I, as we progress through life and as we experience different things, the tendency is for us to take things for granted. The first time something happens, you're blown away. You're overwhelmed by something. But then sooner or later, what was novel, what was spectacular and special, all that novelty tends to wear off. And we tend to take things that were once amazing towards us, super, much, super blessings towards us, and we take them for granted. We take them as if they were just expected. We become entitled, right? The first time you got a new car, you were like, whoa, I love this new car. Look at all the things that it can do. But five years down the line, you get into your car, you don't even spare a thought to think about what, those, what the things that the car can do, the things that amaze you when you first bought the car. Isn't that true? And we do the same things with people. We do the same thing with God. That's the truth. It's part of the human condition. It brings, me, it brings to mind an example of, of even myself and how I take uh, my wife for granted at times. The first time, about 10 months ago, I became a dad. And um, it was an amazing experience. And I was so blown away by my wife's resilience, by how she just powered through the pregnancy, the delivery, and how she was just baptized into <laughs> late nights and tiredness and pain. And she went through all of that like an absolute champion. I was just blown away by it. And then 10 months later, now for those of you who know me, I have a um, tendency, um, I'm a little bit of a neat freak. I'm just gonna put it that way. I like things to be orderly. I like things to be clean. Um, I don't know how those of us amongst us who operate in mess work. Um, and for those who do, we'll pray for you later. Um, but... That's, that's, that's just kind of like my, my wiring. 
And so 10 months down the line, after my wife, is, wife has given birth, like I come home from work, like after a long day, and then I see the house, um, is a bit of a, it's in a bit of a mess. And you know, rightfully so, because how many of us know that babies and cleanliness don't really jive well together? So I come, I come home, like there's, there's toys all over the floor. Um, my wife hasn't had time to clean up after feeding the baby and having lunch. So there's, there's dishes on the table and in the kitchen sink and stuff like that. Um, and to make things worse, uh, for those of you who have been mothers before, you know that after you give birth, you tend to start dropping a lot of hair, right? Because it's the, the trauma that has gone through your body. And so I'm finding like hair, like in, in places where I'm just like, how did this, what, how did this even get here? And then I'll, I start making like little snide comments um, to, to uh, my wife. I'll be like, "Hun, um, how's a bit dirty, hey? Like, oh, it's a bit messy, hey? Oh, I, miss, I, miss, I miss having a really clean house. And what I realized that in my uh, comments and in my uh, hyper-focusing on just what I had wanted is, is that I had totally taken my wife for granted. I had totally taken for granted the fact that she was at home raising this, this little baby all day, putting up with crying and, and, and wailing and trying to put him down to sleep and, and waking him up and feeding him and, and having no respite from all of that. And I had totally taken her for granted. And I was like, whoa, my goodness, how could I, how could I be this way? And all of a sudden it clicked to me as I, was as I was preparing this message. I was like, man, this is exactly how the Israelites treated God. They just get so focused on what they're going through, what they were going through as a nation, the problems that they were facing. They get so focused on trying to live their lives that they totally take for granted all the provision, all the blessing, all the supply that God had given to them. And that's why God brings this up. Have I not been faithful to you? Why are you taking me for granted? And then Amos continues in verse 11 to 12, he says, I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youth. Is this not true, declares the Lord. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. So why does he bring up the prophets and the Nazarites? It's a bit strange. But let me put forward to us that the prophets and the Nazarites were a gift given by God to the people of Israel. They were specific kinds of people whose intention by God was to help the people of Israel draw near to him. The prophets and the Nazarites, they were there given by God to help Israel draw near to God. Prophets would speak as the messengers of God. They would bring God's word to the people. They would reveal God's heart, how God thought about what was happening in the nation. They would bring about encouragement. They would bring about instruction. They would also bring about rebuke when Israel went away and went astray. So God gave them the prophets as a gift to his people to instruct them and help them to walk in his ways. Are we catching that? Now, who were the Nazarites? The Nazarites were um, actually a group of people who took on a vow to be specially set apart and dedicated to God. When you think of Nazarite, the famous Nazarite in the Bible is the judge Samson, right? Now, important to note about Nazarites. Um, the Nazarites were not actually a people group. They weren't like a tribe of Judah. They weren't a subset of the society. Um, the Nazarites were ordinary Israelites who took on a voluntary vow. A voluntary vow that was not compulsory, that you can read about it actually in Numbers chapter six. Any Israelite could volunteer to take on this vow for a specific period of time. 
And what they were doing in taking on this vow is they were trying to show their commitment to drawing near to God. And as part of this vow, it would involve things like abstaining from wine, letting their hair grow out, which is why in Samson's story, you hear about um, cutting his hair was what destroyed his strength. Um, they would stay away from dead bodies and carcasses and whatever else they wanted to commit to God, whatever it is they wanted to commit before God to do, um, they could have the volition, their own discretion to do that before God. So it was, it was a vow that they took, a Nazarite vow to say, Lord, I am being set apart from you, for you. I'm being set apart from the impurity of this world, from the sin of this world, and I am dedicating myself to you for a period of time. And what the Israelites would do is, um, some people would do it as kind of an act of repentance. So if they had recognized that in their life there had been a pattern of wrong living or uh, wrongdoing, uh, sin, they would repent from that and they would take on the Nazarite vow just as a show of the sincerity um, towards God to say, God, I am repenting, I am coming back to you, I'm separating myself from the things of this world and I'm dedicating myself to you. Is that, does that make sense? So it's something similar to kind of like what a monk would do nowadays. They'd, they'd hold themselves up um, in a cave, in a mountain, and they would just dedicate themselves to God. They're kind of separating themselves from the world. So some Israelites would take this to show their sincerity. Others would just take the vow so they could focus on growing their relationship with God for a time. It was a gift, the Nazarite vow was a gift of God to the people of Israel to help the people of Israel draw near to Him. But Amos records how that they rejected even these gifts, the gifts of the prophets, the gifts of the Nazarites by telling the prophets, hey, stop prophesying. The one thing that God has called you to do to help draw me near to Him Stop doing that. And to the Nazarites, drink wine. I know you vowed to abstain from that, to dedicate yourself to God, but hey, hey, it's okay. Drink your wine, it's fine. Can you see how the Israelites were despising even the goodness of God given to them? And so in response to all of this, sin upon sin upon sin, the, the forgetting and taking God for granted, the despising all of God's gift, God's judgment, comes. Amos prophesies that the kingdom of Israel would be crushed. And he uses the metaphor of war. Look at it closely, verse 13 to 16. Now then, God, this is God speaking, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. And then here are all the war metaphors and war analogies that are coming out. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength. The warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. The horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day. The swift, the strong, the warrior, the archer, the soldier, the horseman, all instruments of war. And Amos prophesied that the kingdom of Israel would be totally decimated by war with no escape and no way out. And if you know history, history will tell us that a few decades later, after King Jeroboam, that military king, died, Amos's prophecy would come true. The Assyrian Empire waged war against the northern kingdom of Israel. They laid siege to its capital city for three to four years, the, uh, the city of Samaria, until the city fell and the whole kingdom fell with it. Many Israelites were killed, wiped out, and any who remained were deported, exiled, shipped out of their own nation and distributed amongst the Assyrian Empire. 
They recorded, it's actually recorded in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse five to six. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. God's judgment fell upon the kingdom of Israel. How sad. But here is what strikes me. Here is what strikes me in all of this. The time between Amos' prophecy and the time between the judgment of God actually coming to pass was about 30 to 40 years. 30 to 40 years. Now, the thing that strikes me is why such a delay? If Israel had really reached its tipping point in terms of its wickedness and its evil and its sin against God and its sin against people, why would God delay in his judgment? And here's what I think, which tells us a telling story about the character of God. I believe that even in God's judgment, God wanted to give Israel a second chance. He wanted to give Israel time to repent. Just like the Ninevites, right? In the book of Jonah, Jonah was called to prophesy judgment upon the city of Nineveh. Not to give them a way out, just to prophesy judgment. And then the people of Nineveh, after hearing this pronouncement of God's judgment upon them, repented, rent their clothes, sackcloth and ashes, mourned, turned away from their sin. And God, in His mercy, relented. Just like the Ninevites, I believe the same thing would have happened to the kingdom of Israel. And this is something about God's character that we see reinforced throughout the Bible. That if the people of God would repent, God will relent. If the people of God will repent, God will relent. Let me give you a New Testament example of this. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That is the nature of our God. So as much as we read a book and a text like this, which sounds so harsh, so judgmental, the character of our God is one of long suffering, of patience, of Him wanting us to return to Him and repent to Him. Now, How does this, it's one thing to kind of like understand what is happening in the text, right? To understand the story of what's happening in the book of Amos. But I believe what is more important for us right now is to understand what is happening within us as we read this. So this is not supposed to be just a history lesson on uh, the history of Israel and what happened to them. But what is happening within us? And here is what I think the Holy Spirit may be pressing on. Because we may look at a passage like today and think, wow, the Israelites really, really messed up. They really, really messed up. But here is something that I would like to put forward to us. Um, Are we really so different? Are we really so different? Now, you may be thinking, hang on, hang on a minute. I'm not bribing anyone. (laughs) I am not oppressing the poor. I am not uh, going to temple prostitutes. This has nothing to do with me. But bear in mind, the manifestation may be different, but I think the root 
may be actually the same. Let me describe it for us this way, all right? The kingdom of Israel had the appearance of success on the outside. They were materially wealthy. What they were aiming to do as a nation was actually succeeding. They were getting politically more stable. They were enlarging their territories. They were succeeding. They were growing richer as a result. Their kings weren't dying like flies. Good, <laughs> good results. But underlying all of the superficial appearance of success, underlying it, they were a greedy people. They were indifferent and apathetic to the poor, to the oppressed, to the marginalized. They had taken for granted the goodness of God in their lives and their calling to be a chosen people, holy and set apart for God. They had compromised in their devotion to God by assimilating into the culture of the society around them. And that's why they stepped into te uh, temple prostitution. That's why they stepped into pagan worship. They were just assimilating to the culture around them. Now, does this really sound so different to how one would describe the church today? Would this by any measure describe this church? Take for example, are we like the Israelites consumed by our own self-interest? Consumed by greed maybe? Always itching to buy the next thing, get promoted to the next level, upgrade our gear, upgrade our gadgets, have that next experience? Have we got our money on our mind and our mind on our money? How much of our decisions are actually motivated by self-interest versus the interest of others or what even God is interested in? Another question, does our faith in God, does our relationship with God as a people of God actually result in genuine love and compassion to the people around us? Do we care about the plight of those who are going through injustice and oppression? People who are displaced by wars? People who are going through poverty? The lost? Even in a church like ours, does our faith produce love and compassion to the people around us in church? Are we coming to church and scolding volunteers on the way in? You laugh, you smirk, but it's true. I'm the service pastor. I know, I get all the feedback. <laughs> it's true. And it boggles my mind that we can all come to church to worship our God, and yet on the way in, we can mouth off at this volunteer for not doing that, the Holy Grounds Cafe for volunteers for being slow, the welcome team for not letting me sit where I want to sit. I can mouth off at the sound te team for uh, making the music too loud, too soft, too in my face, too rock, too... <laughs> Are we looking out for the people around us? When we go out into the foyer, are we so consumed with what we want that we are not even noticing the first time visitor, the people who are exploring the faith for the first time, the people who may feel out of place in, our, in buildings and settings as big and as large and as confusing as the ones that we are in? Are we compromised by the culture that is around us or are we really set apart for God? Are there things that we participate in as Christians as the people of God that our society deems as okay, 
But if we were honest with God, we would know that He disapproves of it. Maybe our passion for consumerism, the way that we view sexual ethics in relationships, our self-centeredness that we disguise as self-care and self-love and drawing our margins, the way we talk, the things we say, even our integrity, something as simple as taking sickies. Society deems it okay that we take a sickie the moment you feel anything, you've had a long weekend, you had a wedding on Sunday night, it was tiring, we all agree. Sickie on Monday. But is God really okay with that? Have we assimilated into our culture so much and that we have compromised being the people of God? Heavy questions, heavy questions. And listen to me, I'm not trying to criticize this church. I'm not trying to criticize the church. But I'm just saying, if we're honest and we look at the text, I think we do see glimpses and flashes of similarity between the people of God then and the people of God now. Would you agree? But today I believe that the Word of God has opened itself up to us because he wants, God wants to remind us that this is not who you and I are called to be. The people of God are not called to be this way. The Bible mentions that faith without works is dead, and I think it's okay, it's actually good for us as believers to ask the question, what is it that my faith in God is producing? What does my faith in God produce? For us as a church, what does our collective faith and our relationship with God as a people of God produce in the world around us? Does it bring about justice and righteousness flowing on like a river? Or does it perpetuate injustice, intolerance? Or does it do nothing at all? And if we have fallen short in this, then the character of God remains the same. He is slow to anger. He is long-suffering. He is patient. He wants us to repent. He wants us to repent. So right now, I just wanna give us a chance to respond to the Word of God by repenting. And repenting is not, um, a condemning game where it's saying, ha, you're a subpar Christian, look at you, you do this, you do that. No, no, no. Repenting is a beautiful thing where the people of God realize, God, you have spoken to me and I have fallen short. But Lord, I am committing back to you again. It's a beautiful thing. It's one of the most beautiful things that you can do as a Christian. So can I just get us all to stand to our feet? As we've been talking today, And as we've been opening the text, the Holy Spirit may be speaking to us, especially for those of us who have been in church for a long time. With, and this question may be burning in your mind. What is it exactly that my faith is producing? What has my faith produced? And if you are measuring and if you're doing an audit of your own life and you're realizing that, man, my, my faith isn't actually producing all that much, it's not resulting in people being loved, in God being loved. And I've fallen f so far short of what God has called me to be. Then I would just invite you in this moment just to close your eyes and just to lift your hands up to God as a sign to say, Lord, I'm coming back. Lord, I'm recommitting. That's it. Just to say, Lord, I know I've fallen short. 
I recognise it. I hear your voice speaking to me this morning. And Lord, I wanna return. So all across this place, the city campus online, just raise your hands, allow me to pray, and then in a moment, we'll respond with a song. Heavenly Father, you see every hand that is raised to you right now. Lord, I thank you for speaking to your people, for convicting us of who we are called to be in you, for reminding us that as the people of God, we are to look different. We are, our faith in you is supposed to result in love for our fellow man, to a single-hearted devotion to you. Lord, you have called us to be chosen and set apart. And Lord, in so many ways, we fall short, I fall short. But Lord, I thank you that your heart towards me is not one that immediately jumps to judgment and to condemnation. But Lord, you are long suffering and patient. You give us chance after chance after chance to repent and to come back to you. And so Lord, today that is what we are doing. We are returning to you. Come and have your way in our hearts. Show us how it is that we are called to live. Teach us day by day. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, God, so that we can live up to the high calling and to be worthy of the calling that you have set us for. Make us into the bride of Christ you have called us to be, pure and blameless before you. Lord, do a deep work in our hearts today. We commit ourselves to you again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.